Section 13 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. Comparative Anatomy, Part 1. Whenever we find a general plan pursued, yet with such variations in it as are in each case required by the particular exigency of the subject to which it is applied, we possess, in such plan and such adaptation, the strongest evidence that can be afforded of intelligence and design, an evidence which the most completely excludes every other hypothesis. If the general plan proceeded from any fixed necessity in the nature of things, how could it accommodate itself to the various wants and uses which it had to serve under different circumstances and on different occasions? Arkwright's mill was invented for the spinning of cotton. We see it employed for the spinning of wool, flax, and hemp, with such modifications of the original principle, such variety in the same plan, as the texture of those different materials rendered necessary. Of the machines being put together with design, if it were possible to doubt, whilst we saw it only under one mode and in one form, when we came to observe it in its different applications, with such changes of structure, such additions and supplements, as the special and particular use in each case demanded, we could not refuse any longer our assent to the proposition that intelligence, properly and strictly so called, including under that name foresight, consideration, reference to utility, had been employed as well in the primitive plan as in the several changes and accommodations which it has made to undergo. Very much of this reasoning is applicable to what has been called comparative anatomy. In their general economy, in the outlines of the plan, in the construction as well as offices of their principal parts, there exists between all large terrestrial animals a close resemblance. In all, life is sustained and the body nourished by nearly the same apparatus. The heart, the lungs, the stomach, the liver, the kidneys are much alike in all. The same fluid, for no distinction of blood has been observed, circulates through the vessels and nearly in the same order. The same cause, therefore, whatever that cause was, has been concerned in the origin has governed the production of these different animal forms. When we pass on to smaller animals, or to the inhabitants of a different element, the resemblance becomes more distant and more obscure, but still the plan accompanies us. And what we can never enough commend, and which it is our business at present to exemplify, the plan is attended through all its varieties and deflections by subserviences to special occasions and utilities. 1. The covering of different animals though whether I am correct in classing this under their anatomy I do not know, is the first thing which presents itself to our observation, and is, in truth, both for its variety and its suitableness to their several natures, as much to be admired as any part of their structure. We have bristles, hair, wool, furs, feathers, quills, prickles, scales. Yet in the diversity both of material and form, we cannot change one animal's coat for another without evidently changing it for the worse, taking care, however, to remark that these coverings are, in many cases, armor as well as clothing, intended for protection as well as warmth. The human animal is the only one which is naked, and the only one which can clothe itself. This is one of the properties which renders him an animal of all climates and of all seasons. He can adapt the warmth or lightness of his covering to the temperature of his habitation. Had he been born with fleece upon his back, although he might have been comforted by its warmth in high latitudes, it would have oppressed him by its weight and heat as the species spread towards the equator. 
What art, however, does for men, nature has, in many instances, done for those animals which are incapable of art. Their clothing, of its own accord, changes with their necessities. This is particularly the case with that large tribe of quadrupeds which are covered with furs. Every dealer in hare skins and rabbit skins knows how much the fur is thickened by the approach of winter. It seems to be a part of the same constitution and the same design that wool in hot countries degenerates, as it is called, but in truth, most happily for the animal's ease, passes into hair, whilst, on the contrary, that hair in the dogs of the polar regions is turned into wool, or something very like it, to which may be referred, what naturalists have remarked, that bears, wolves, foxes, hares, which do not take the water, have the fur much thicker on the back than the belly, whereas in the beaver it is the thickest upon the belly, as are the feathers in the waterfowl. We know the final cause of all this, and we know no other. The covering of birds cannot escape the most vulgar observation. Its lightness, its smoothness, its warmth, the disposition of the feathers all inclined backward, the down about their stem, the overlapping of their tips, their different configuration in different parts, not to mention the variety of their colors, constitute a vestment for the body so beautiful and so appropriate to the life which the animal is to lead, as that, I think, we should have had no conception of anything equally perfect if we had never seen it, or can now imagine anything more so. Let us suppose, what is possible only in supposition, a person who had never seen a bird, to be presented with a plucked pheasant, and bid to set his wits to work, how to contrive for it a covering which shall unite the qualities of warmth, levity, and least resistance to the air, and the highest degree of each, giving it also as much of beauty and ornament as he could afford. He is the person to behold the work of the deity, in this part of his creation, with the sentiments which are due to it. The commendation which the general aspect of the feathered world seldom fails of exciting will be increased by further examination. It is one of those cases in which the philosopher has more to admire than the common observer. Every feather is a mechanical wonder. If we look at the quill, we find properties not easily brought together, strength and lightness. I know few things more remarkable than the strength and lightness of the very pen with which I am writing. If we cast our eye to the upper part of the stem, we see a material made for the purpose, used in no other class of animals and in no other part of birds, tough, light, pliant, elastic. The pith also, which feeds the feather, is, amongst animal substances, sui generis, neither bone, flesh, membrane, nor tendon. Footnote. The quill part of a feather is composed of circular and longitudinal fibers. In making a pen, you must scrape off the coat of circular fibers, or the quill will split in a ragged, jagged manner, making what boys call cat's teeth. End of footnote. But the artificial part of a feather is the beard, or, as it is sometimes, I believe, called the vein. By the beards are meant what are fastened on each side of the stem, and what constitute the breadth of the feather, what we usually strip off from one side or both when we make a pen. The separate pieces, or laminae, of which the beard is composed, are called threads, sometimes filaments, or rays. Now the first thing which an attentive observer will remark is, how much stronger the beard of the feather shows itself to be when pressed in a direction perpendicular to its plane than when rubbed, either up or down, in the line of the stem. And he will soon discover the structure which occasions this difference, viz. that the laminae whereof these beards are composed are flat 
and placed with their flat sides towards each other, by which means, whilst they easily bend for the approaching of each other, as any one may perceive by drawing his finger ever so lightly upwards, they are much harder to bend out of their plane, which is the direction in which they have to encounter the impulse and pressure of air, and in which their strength is wanted and put to the trial. This is one particularity in the structure of a feather. A second is still more extraordinary. Whoever examines a feather cannot help taking notice that the threads or laminae of which we have been speaking, in their natural state, unite, that their union is something more than the mere apposition of loose surfaces, that they are not parted asunder without some degree of force, that nevertheless there is no glutinous cohesion between them, that, therefore, by some mechanical means or other, they catch or clasp among themselves, thereby giving to the beard or vein its closeness and compactness of texture. Nor is this all. When two laminae, which have been separated by accident or force, are brought together again, they immediately reclasp. The connection, whatever it was, is perfectly recovered, and the beard of the feather becomes as smooth and firm as if nothing had happened to it. Draw your finger down the feather, which is against the grain, and you break probably the junction of some of the contiguous threads. Draw your finger up the feather, and you restore all things to their former state. This is no common contrivance, and now for the mechanism by which it is effected. The threads or laminae above mentioned are interlaced with one another, and the interlacing is performed by means of an infinite number of fibers or teeth which the laminae shoot forth on each side, and which hook and grapple together. A friend of mine counted fifty of these fibers in one-twentieth of an inch. These fibers are crooked, but curved after a different manner. For those which proceed from the thread on the side towards the extremity of the feather are longer, more flexible, and bent downward, whereas those which proceed from the side towards the beginning or quill end of the feather are shorter, firmer, and turn upwards. The process, then, which takes place is as follows. When two laminae are pressed together, so that these long fibers are forced far enough over the short ones, their crooked parts fall into the cavity made by the crooked parts of the others, just as the latch that is fastened to a door enters into the cavity of the catch fixed to the doorpost, and there, hooking itself, fastens the door, for it is properly in this manner that one thread of a feather is fastened to the other. This admirable structure of the feather, which it is easy to see with the microscope, succeeds perfectly for the use to which nature has designed it, which use was not only that the laminae might be united, but that when one thread or lamina has been separated from another by some external violence, it might be reclasped with sufficient facility and expedition. In the ostrich, this apparatus of crotchets and fibers, of hooks and teeth, is wanting, and we see the consequence of the want. The filaments hang loose and separate from one another, forming only a kind of down, which constitution of the feathers, however it may fit them for the flowing honors of a lady's headdress, may be reckoned an imperfection in the bird, inasmuch as wings, composed of these feathers, although they may greatly assist it in running, do not serve for flight. But under the present division of our subject, our business with feathers is, as they are the covering of the bird, and herein a singular circumstance occurs. In the small order of birds which winter with us, from a snipe downwards, let the external color of the feathers be what it will, their creator has universally given them a bed of black down next their bodies. Black, we know, is the warmest color, and the purpose here is to keep in the heat arising from the heart and circulation of the blood. 
It is further likewise remarkable that this is not found in larger birds, for which there is also a reason. Small birds are much more exposed to the cold than large ones, for as much as they present, in proportion to their bulk, a much larger surface to the air. If a turkey was divided into a number of wrens, supposing the shape of the turkey and the wren to be similar, the surface of all the wrens would exceed the surface of the turkey in the proportion of the length, breadth, or of any homologous line, of a turkey to that of a wren, which would be perhaps a proportion of ten to one. It was necessary, therefore, that small birds should be warmer clad than large ones, and this seems to be the expedient by which that exigency is provided for. 2. In comparing different animals, I know no part of their structure which exhibits greater variety, or in that variety, a nicer accommodation to their respective conveniency, than that which is seen in the different formations of their mouths. Whether the purpose be the reception of aliment merely, or the catching of prey, the picking up of seeds, the cropping of herbage, the extraction of juices, the suction of liquids, the breaking and grinding of food, the taste of that food, together with the respiration of air, and, in conjunction with it, the utterance of sound, these various offices are assigned to this one part, and, in different species, provided for, as they are wanted, by its different constitution. In the human species, forasmuch as there are hands to convey the food to the mouth, the mouth is flat, and by reason of its flatness fitted only for reception whereas the projecting jaws, the wide rictus, the pointed teeth of the dog and his affinities, enable them to apply their mouths to snatch and seize the objects of their pursuit. The full lips, the rough tongue, the corrugated cartilaginous palate, the broad cutting teeth of the ox, the deer, the horse, and the sheep, qualify this tribe for browsing upon their pasture, either gathering large mouthfuls at once, where the grass is long, which is the case with the ox in particular, or biting close, where it is short, which the horse and the sheep are able to do, in a degree that one could hardly expect. The retired underjaw of a swine works in the ground, after the protruding snout, like a prong or plowshare, has made its way to the roots upon which it feeds. A confirmation so happy was not the gift of chance. In birds this organ assumes a new character, new both in substance and in form, but in both wonderfully adapted to the wants and uses of a distinct mode of existence. We have no longer the fleshy lips, the teeth of enameled bone, but we have, in the place of these two parts, and to perform the office of both, a hard substance, of the same nature with that which composes the nails, claws, and hoofs of quadrupeds, cut out into proper shapes and mechanically suited to the actions which are wanted. The sharp edge and tempered point of the sparrow's bill picks almost every kind of seed from its concealment in the plant, and not only so, but hulls the grain, breaks and shatters the coats of the seed, in order to get at the kernel. The hooked beak of the hawk tribe separates the flesh from the bones of the animals which it feeds upon, almost with the cleanness and precision of a dissector's knife. The butcher bird transfixes its prey upon the spike of a thorn whilst it picks its bones. In some birds of this class we have the crossbill, i.e., both the upper and lower bill hooked, and their tips crossing. The spoonbill enables the goose to graze, to collect its food from the bottom of ponds, or to seek it amidst the soft or liquid substances with which it is mixed. The long tapering bill of the snipe and woodcock penetrates still deeper into moist earth, which is the bed in which the food of that species is lodged. This is exactly the instrument which the animal wanted. 
it did not want strength in its bill which was inconsistent with the slender form of the animal's neck as well as unnecessary for the kind of aliment upon which it subsists but it wanted length to reach its object but the species of bill which belongs to birds that live by suction deserves to be described in its particular relation to that office they are what naturalists call serrated or dentated bills the inside of them towards the edge being thickly set with parallel or concentric rows of short strong sharp-pointed prickles these though they should be called teeth are not for the purpose of mastication like the teeth of quadrupeds nor yet as in fish for the seizing and retaining of their prey but for a quite different use they form a filter the duck by means of them discusses the mud examining with great accuracy the puddle the brake every mixture which is likely to contain her food the operation is thus carried on the liquid or semi-liquid substances in which the animal has plunged her bill she draws by the action of her lungs through the narrow interstices which lie between these teeth catching as the stream passes across her beak whatever it may happen to bring along with it that proves agreeable to her choice and easily dismissing all the rest now suppose the purpose to have been out of a mass of confused and heterogeneous substances to separate for the use of the animal or rather to enable the animal to separate for its own those few particles which suited its taste and digestion what more artificial or more commodious instrument of selection could have been given to it than this natural filter it has been observed also what must enable the bird to choose and distinguish with greater acuteness as well probably as what increases its gratification and its luxury that the bills of this species are furnished with large nerves that they are covered with a skin and that the nerves run down to the very extremity in the curlew woodcock and snipe there are three pairs of nerves equal almost to the optic nerve in thickness which pass first along the roof of the mouth and then along the upper chap down to the point of the bill long as the bill is but to return to the train of our observations the similitude between the bills of birds and the mouths of quadrupeds is exactly such as for the sake of the argument might be wished for it is near enough to show the continuation of the same plan it is remote enough to exclude the supposition of the difference being produced by action or use a more prominent contour or a wider gape might be resolved into the effect of continued efforts on the part of the species to thrust out the mouth or open it to the stretch but by what course of action or exercise or endeavor shall we get rid of the lips the gums the teeth and acquire in the place of them pincers of horn by what habit shall we so completely change not only the shape of the part but the substance of which it is composed the truth is if we had seen no other than the mouths of quadrupeds we should have thought no other could have been formed little could we have supposed that all the purposes of a mouth furnished with lips and armed with teeth could be answered by an instrument which had none of these could be supplied and that with many additional advantages by the hardness and sharpness and figure of the bills of birds everything about the animal mouth is mechanical the teeth of fish have their points turned backwards like the teeth of a wool or cotton card the teeth of lobsters work one against another like the sides of a pair of shears in many insects the mouth is converted into a pump or sucker fitted at the end sometimes with a wimble sometimes with a forceps by which double provision viz of the tube and the penetrating form of the point the insect first bores through the integuments of its prey and then extracts the juices and what is most extraordinary of all one sort of mouth as the occasion requires shall be changed into another sort 
the caterpillar could not live without teeth. In several species, the butterfly formed from it could not use them. The old teeth, therefore, are cast off with the exuviae of the grub. A new and totally different apparatus assumes their place in the fly. Amidst these novelties of form, we sometimes forget that it is, all the while, the animal's mouth. That, whether it be lips, or teeth, or bill, or beak, or shears, or pump, it is the same part diversified, and it is also remarkable that, under all the varieties of configuration with which we are acquainted, and which are very great, the organs of taste and smelling are situated near each other. End of section 13